Our first scripture reading is from Proverbs chapter 16, verses 1 to 5. Proverbs 16. Just the first five verses of that chapter. The uh, heading here has the, a contrast uh, between the upright and the wicked. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. Commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. A number of important things in that passage, but for our purposes this afternoon, it's especially verse 4. Uh, the Lord has made everything for its own purpose. Even the wicked have been made by God for a particular purpose. And we'll be touching on some of that uh, in the sermon this afternoon. Uh, would you turn also, please, to Luke chapter 10? Luke 10. And verses 17 to 24. Luke 10, verses 17 to 24. The text for the sermon is verses 21 to 24. And after that, I'll read from the Westminster Confession. Luke 10, from verse 17. And the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your name's are recorded in heaven. And then our text through to verse 24. At that very time he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou didst hide these things from the wise and intelligent and didst reveal them to babes. Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in thy sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And turning to, to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wish to see the things which you see and did not see them and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. And then in your bulletin you should find a copy of the Westminster Confession 
chapter 3, articles 3 through to 8. Um, it's a fairly lengthy uh, section, but um, quite a number of articles there, but it does deal with a fairly common uh, uh, theme, an aspect of God's decree. So we'll put those together as we look at the passage. And I'll read first Article 3. By the decree of God, for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestinated unto everlasting life, and others foreordained to everlasting death. Article 4. These angels and men thus predestinated and foreordained are particularly and unchangeably designed and their number so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. Article 5. Those of mankind that are predestinated unto life, God before the foundation of the world was laid according to his eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love without any foresight of faith or good works or perseverance in either of them or either any other thing in the creature as conditions or causes moving him thereunto and all to the praise of his glorious grace. Article 6. As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so hath he by the eternal and most free purpose his by the eternal and most free purpose his will foreordained all the means thereunto. Wherefore they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ by his Spirit working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any others redeemed by Christ, effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. Number seven, the rest of mankind God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he pleaseth for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonour and wrath for their sin, to the praise of his glorious justice. And eight, the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care, that men, attending the will of God revealed in his word, and yielding obedience thereunto, may, from the certainty of their effectual vocation, be assured of their eternal election." So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, since there are many who attack the uh, the truth, who attack both the faith and the faithful, and often at the very point of the doctrine we are considering this afternoon, 
concerning your decree and the fairness and the justice of it. So, Father, we pray that you would protect us also in this area and strengthen our faith and our hope through your word, including these teachings. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant people of God, uh, people often like to have their secrets. They might uh, choose to share their secrets with a select few, but to keep others in the dark. And there can be a variety of reasons why they make those choices. They may feel that if they tell certain people their secret, the information will leak out. So they tell some whom they trust and others they will not tell. Or they may feel that there are some people who really have a a right or a necessity to know those things. And so they share with those people, whereas they feel others have no right to know, and so they do not tell them those things. Or again, it may be driven simply by personal favoritism. You have a trusted friend, you enjoy talking with them, you enjoy even sharing some of the deeper things about your life, and so you share with them, whereas there may be another person uh, with whom you do not have a very good or close relationship and you might think, I wouldn't tell them anything. Why should I have anything to do with them? I don't even like them. So there can be a variety of reasons. Of course, uh, none of the base motives can be applied to God in his decisions as to whom he will reveal himself and from whom he will conceal himself. It is uh, true that we don't really know a lot about these things. We don't know a lot about what lies behind God's actions when he reveals and conceals and does other things. We don't know a huge amount about what lies behind that in eternity, in God's eternal decisions, his eternal purpose. And we noted that last time as well, that we don't know a lot about the eternal decree which we considered last week in a very general terms. But now this week what we're looking at is some of the things that we are told about that decree, but in a specific area especially, the area of those to whom God's truth is revealed over against those from whom he keeps it. Uh, Matters of predestination to do with those who are elect and those who are not. And the scripture, as I say, does teach us about such things. We may not know a lot about what goes on in eternity in the, in the decree of God, but we are told a few things about these matters. And it comes out also in our text, which we look at under two headings. First of all, the joy of the Lord Jesus, and secondly, the confession of the Lord Jesus. His joy and his confession. In the first place, then, we see the Lord Jesus Uh, rejoicing here as verse 21 has it. And not only does it say that he's rejoicing, but that he was rejoicing greatly. And the language that is used here implies that he was uh, very exuberant in his uh, joy and his expression of it. We read also that he was rejoicing in the Holy Spirit. In other words, he was moved by the Holy Spirit to this exuberant expression of joy the spirit with whom he had been filled as a man for his messianic mission. And you can read about that in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. 
So he was filled as the Messiah, as one who had a human nature. He was filled by the Holy Spirit for the work that he was going to do, the work of proclaiming the gospel and of freeing sinners from their bondage to Satan and of healing them of their spiritual problems. He was filled with the Spirit for that work and now the Spirit leads him to give praise with great joy to God because of what's happening with that mission and with that work. The Lord also is said to give praise to God over this matter. I praise you, O Father, also in the same verse. I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And even that word praise is a word that implies a celebratory praise, praise with joy. So we have here a big emphasis on spirit-moved joy on the part of the Lord Jesus. That joy, and again this tells us something about what it is that the Lord Jesus was rejoicing over, that joy is said to take place at that very time. Literally that reads, in the same hour, the same hour in which the Lord heard the report and commented on it from the 70 disciples who had been sent out to those places that the Lord had on his itinerary where he was planning to go, but he sent the disciples out to those places ahead. And he sent them out to preach the gospel and to perform kingdom miracles, the signs and wonders of that time. And you can get some information on that earlier in chapter 10, in chapter 10, verse 1, and verses 17 to 20. And note again that when the 70 come back and they report on this, they also do so with joy. So again, you've got that emphasis in verse 17 on joy at the the response of people to the mission of the 70. Because it is the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ that was now being seen to be carried out successfully, as had been prophesied. Now even the demons were subject to the disciples in Christ's name and uh, many people believed as well. I often find myself wondering if we uh, ourselves feel as much joy as we read about here, the joy of the Lord Jesus, the joy of the disciples moved by the Holy Spirit, if we feel as much joy when we hear about sinners being converted today. We might be more inclined to do so, I suspect, if we're actually the ones, if you're the one doing the evangelizing, it's wonderful if somebody responds to that. Very, very encouraging, and you can rejoice in that. But do we rejoice as much about the work in general and about the progress of the gospel in general? When we hear about people being converted through the ministry of others, do we have that kind of joy that we read about here? Well, we might might be inclined to say, but I don't see the same happy results at present that the 70 reported on. We don't have uh, healings, we don't have exorcisms, and it seems we don't even have a huge number of conversions. But remember, it is the same Lord Jesus Christ, and it is exactly the same gospel that is going forth. It is the same kingdom that is being proclaimed, and the same Christ, and the Lord Jesus has exactly the same power to subject the demonic world, as well as to subject sinners to himself according to his purposes. The time of signs and wonders has passed, 
but the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the gospel has not. And that gospel and that Lord are just as worthy of joy and praise as ever, as at the time we read about here. Now, in that connection, note also that Matthew 11, verses 25 to 27, that's the parallel in Matthew's gospel to our text. But in Matthew's account, he sets this event in a slightly different context. And that's not a, not a problem, that's not unusual. The gospel writers had slightly different purposes and they did that all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit without any real contradictions. But nevertheless, they had slightly different purposes and they sometimes placed different events and different accounts of what the Lord Jesus had done in a different order in order to bring out certain things according to those purposes. And in Matthew's Gospel, this account comes where after John the Baptist had been imprisoned, begun to question whether the Lord Jesus really was the Messiah and sent messengers to him to ask, are you the one? Are you really the one? And the Lord sent the message back with those who were instructed to tell John about what had happened with the ministry of the 70 and indeed of the Lord Jesus himself. Showing that John the progress of the gospel as evidence of who he was, that he was indeed the Messiah. But something else happens in Matthew 11, verses 20 to 24, and that is something we don't find in Luke's gospel here, that the Lord, in addition to that, denounced those cities which had not received the ministry of the 70. Those cities and areas that had in fact been resistant to the progress and the cause of the gospel, the same gospel. And Matthew then places what we read as our text here in Luke, he places that same passage uh, in that context after denouncing those who rejected the message. And he says that this took place at that time, Matthew 11 verse 25, which is a little bit different than what we have in our text. Our text says, this is what Jesus said at the very hour he heard the report from the 70. And Matthew says, at that same time in the sense of a, a period of time or a season, rather than at that very hour. In other words, putting this together... When the Lord Jesus heard the report of the 70, he responded immediately with great joy and praise. Somewhere around that time, but not immediately, but around that time, the Lord Jesus also talked about the rebellion of some within Israel to that same gospel. And our text, which applies to both of those situations, then therefore deals with both types of response, those who accept the gospel as well as those who reject it. And the Lord Jesus then prays with joy to his Father about both of those aspects. Indeed, he praises God for both of those aspects, both the hiding and also the revealing of the gospel. Now, it may seem a hard thing to praise God for the rejection of the gospel, and we probably don't do that very often. And that's especially so 
if you're the one doing the evangelising and someone's not listening, how often do we go back and give praise to God for that? Or if it's somebody, somebody else maybe doing the evangelising, but they're doing it to someone we know really well, perhaps someone we're very, very close to and love, and that person's not listening. Do we go and praise God that that person is not listening? Well, I would suggest that in a way this is a little bit like the call that we have to sing the imprecatory psalms. Psalms like Psalm 5 and 10 and 12 and 109, those psalms that call on God to deal with his enemies. And we're called to sing those psalms and to praise God for that and even to rejoice in what God is doing on the Day of Judgment, for example. In Revelation 18, verse 20, the saints are urged to rejoice over the destruction of Babylon, to rejoice in it. But let me hasten to explain. What we are talking about about here is a joy in and a praise for God's glory, the glory of what he's showing in these things, and a praise for God's holiness, what he shows of his holiness in these things, and his justice in these things, and his power in these things, as well as for his mercy and his grace to those who are being saved. We are being called here to rejoice in God's plan to make this world right again. And that plan involves not only saving some, but also removing those who are wicked and who have rejected him and continue to do so. And what we are not talking about here, either with the imprecatory psalms or the joy that we see in this passage, is some kind of vindictive pleasure in the the suffering of the wicked or the suffering of our enemies as such. Well, we've talked a little bit about the and touched on the, the praise that the Lord Jesus gives to his Father on these things. But I want to note also that his response to the results of the mission of the 70 is not only praise of his Father, it is also a confession, both of the Father and of the Son in the Holy Spirit. In other words, what we have here is a Trinitarian confession. Our second and final point the confession of the Lord Jesus. And the reason I call this a confession is because the word that's translated praise here basically means to confess openly, as well as to do so with praise, even a joyful praise. Literally, it is a strengthened form of a word that means to say the same. And as I've mentioned before, Uh, The whole idea of confession, you know, the the church is a, a confessing body. A Christian is a person who by definition is a confessor. We confess God. We're called to do so. And that's part of what it means to be a Christian. And that word confession means essentially to say the same. The Lord Jesus openly and joyfully says the same thing as his Father. And we as God's people say the same thing as God according to his word as we confess him. That's what it means to confess. What then does the Lord Jesus confess with joy and with praise? Well, two main things. The first of those, the first one is that he confesses that the Father 
the Lord of heaven and earth, has hidden these things, the truth of the gospel, his uh, teachings about those things, that God the Father has hidden those things from the wise and intelligent and has revealed them to infants. Now, I, I hasten to add to this, to say it to, by way of explanation, um, that there are many who misunderstand this kind of language in this place anyway, and who think that what this means is that God is so impressed with the humility of some people that he tells them his secrets. He reveals the truth to them. Whereas there are others who are arrogant and proud, and in their arrogance and, and their pride, they, they harden their hearts against God, and so he refuses to explain things to them. So they, they make this passage all about God's response to human behaviour, and that's all. And there's no doubt that that is a scripture teaching that uh, God does not uh, uh, like, he hates pride and arrogance, and those who come to him must do so with the humility of a child. There's plenty of scripture teaching on that. So that is an important part of one's response to the gospel. No doubt about that. But what I want to say is that this passage is saying more than that, much more than that. This passage is, is going behind the human response to something far deeper, to something prior. It is going back to the, what we've referred to before as the decree of God. And uh, there's a number of reasons why we want to say this. One is that there's no human merit such that God is more impressed with some people and he says, I'll tell you my truth because you've been so wonderful in the way that you've treated me and you're so much better than all those other people who have hardened their hearts and because you are so much better, I'm going to do you a favour and tell you more. There's no shred of human merit in this whatsoever or in anything. No, what we are talking about here is back of man's response. The eternal and immutable, the unchanging decree of God. We are talking here about predestination. We are talking here about God's predestining of the elect, those whom he has chosen for eternal life, for salvation. And we are also talking about the reprobate, those who are passed by. That language you might have noted in the Westminster Confession those who are passed by. Sometimes you, if you read uh, theology books, you'll see the word preterition, which is a technical term for those whom God passes by in his eternal decree. And also as part of that eternal decree that God then predestines those passed by for condemnation in due time because of their sins. And this is what the Westminster Chapter 3 and Articles 3 to 8 is talking about this particular aspect of the decree, election and reprobation. The fact that we are talking about here with the eternal decree, that free and eternal unchanging purpose of God according to his own counsel is seen in a number of ways in this text. First of all, it's seen by the use of the word well-pleasing. It's a word that also can be translated good pleasure, the good pleasure of God. 
And it doesn't mean that God is pleased with the response of some who believed, though that also may be generally true. But it's a stronger word than that that refers to God's very purpose for them, his good intention, his good purpose for those people, this eternal purpose both to reveal himself to some and hide himself from others. And you can trace that expression, the good pleasure of God, through other parts of the scripture where it's used the same way, such as in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, where the same word is used for God's eternal purpose, his predestination of the elect. And it's used here, that language, for both the elect and the reprobate. It is confirmed also by the use of the words hidden and revealed, which in this text uh, use a tense that implies a once-for-all action by God, not some process taking place in time by which God, as people respond a certain way, he then responds and then another time they act differently and he acts differently. And not talking about those ongoing processes in time, but talking about God's once-and-for-all decisions. There are, there's other uh, scripture passages that deal with this subject similarly. Uh, there's another word throughout the scripture, a word that's uh, translated to predestine or predestinate, meaning to determine beforehand and then to direct things so determined to that particular end that you have in mind for them. And that is also used both for the elect and for the reprobate. Verses like 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9, 1 Peter 2 verse 8, Romans 9 verses 21 and 22, Jude verses 4 verse 4, and uh, as we also looked at it, Proverbs 16 verse 4, where it says the wicked were made for a purpose. That's slightly different language, but similar ideas. Well, as I said, this is a difficult subject. And it causes many to raise questions about God's fairness as the Apostle Paul discusses in Romans 9. Though as the Apostle Paul knew, these truths are beyond our comprehension and so it's very difficult for us to come back and say to God, that's not fair. It's not fair for you to hide from the truth from some and conceal from others according to your eternal purpose, simply of your own good pleasure. And the Apostle Paul says, who do you think you are? Who are you, O oh man, who answers back to God? You're just a lump of clay, a piece of clay. You're just a speck of dust. And this is the potter we're talking about, who has the right to do what he wants with the clay that he has made. We also want to uphold what we saw last week, that the decisions of men and also the the decisions they make now and the decisions they will make in the future, the decisions of men are not ultimate. Man is not sovereign. Man is not in charge. It is God who is sovereign over the past, the present and the future. It is God who is sovereign over the decisions of men, whether they open their hearts or close their hearts. And it is God who is equally sovereign as to whether he reveals the truth to one or conceals it from another. You know, you make a decision to reveal or conceal the truth. And that decision that you make in everyday life to conceal something or to reveal it, that's your decision. It's your decision to make. 
to tell a secret or to dispel someone's ignorance. And no one can force you to do that. No one can force you to divulge those things, except possibly by torture sometimes, that's been tried. But you see, God cannot be tortured, and God cannot be forced, and God cannot even be pressured. His counsel is his own in eternity. And it does not depend on the creature. The creature depends on it. If God reveals the gospel, it is therefore his prior decision and it is his decision alone. And the same is true with hiding the truth from sinners. And his eternal decree is not determined by the future or by the future actions of men, but it is by his own good pleasure. The other thing the Lord Jesus confesses here Well, he confesses himself, actually. He confesses the Son. He confesses that the Son is essentially one with the Father in his eternal purposes. Again, that that Trinitarian teaching. The Lord Jesus, he confesses, has the same power to save as the Father has. He is equally divine as the eternal second person of the Trinity. And all things needed for his saving work and mission were handed over to him as Messiah, who is both God and man. Handed over also with the equipping of the Holy Spirit as he entered his office. But no sinner can know either the Father or the Son unless the Son wills to reveal the Father to him. He can reveal the Father because he knows him perfectly, even as the Father knows the Son perfectly within the Trinity. But the Lord Jesus only reveals God or conceals him from sinners according to the eternal purposes of God. Because the eternal purposes of God, the eternal purpose of the Father, is Jesus' purpose. We see once again in this wording that this is not talking about God responding to sinners simply. It's certainly not talking about God responding to a sinner's use of his alleged free will, but it is talking about the eternal purposes of God, the eternal purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, a careful and prudent use of this this teaching actually ought to produce joyful praise in the believer just as it did with the Lord Jesus. Praise, reverence, and admiration of God, as Article 8 puts it in the Confession. Praise for that absolute sovereignty of God and his purposes, that we see at work in these things. That What a sovereign and great God we have, how almighty he is. And these things ought to lead us to praise him all the more, not to criticise. Humility, it ought to lead us to humility, as we are reminded and to gratitude, knowing that we are all sinners who deserve to be passed by and deserve in ourselves to be condemned and would be were it not for the Lord Jesus Christ. Gratitude also that, like the disciples in Jesus' time, we've been, God has explained, he's revealed these things to us, things that even the greats of the Old Testament, the great prophets and the great kings, they long to know about these things and Here we have ordinary Christians today have these things revealed to us 
in the scripture in the uh, fullness of time. Uh, Also comfort. Comfort to know that if you're one of the elect, it is according to God's eternal and immutable purpose, the, the immutable purpose of a sovereign God. Not something that's subject to unravelling suddenly sometime in the future because you decide of your own free will that you're going to do something different. But the unchanging purpose of the sovereign God. Diligence also. Because we know that God has, he's also predestined the means for revealing the truth, such as our proclaiming of the gospel, praying for the people that we're evangelising, and which also, to be honest, sometimes occasions hardness of heart in the reactions of sinners. But diligence, because that is what God has called us to do. And he has ordained also those means. And he has decreed also that we will be held responsible for how we serve him in this area. Not knowing then who is elect and who is reprobate. We simply busy ourselves with the joyful praises of God and joyfully striving to serve him also in that spreading of the gospel. And keep on doing so whether we face a positive reaction from those around us or at times a hostile reaction. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, would you so instill in us the truth that you are the potter and we are but clay. And the truth also that everything you do is right and just and good. So instill these things in us that we do not question your right to choose some for salvation and to pass others by. And your right to justly choose to condemn the wicked, those who have rebelled against you. Father, would you cause this conviction to drive us to even more praise, humble joy and praise of of your majesty and your sovereign power and your holiness and your goodness and your justice and your mercy. And will you use it also to move us to greater diligence in striving to serve you, to obey you, and as part of that, calling sinners around us to repent and believe. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're called by sovereign mercy, the Lord's choosing, the Lord's ordaining according to his good pleasure, same kind of language. We find that uh, reflected, that kind of language in hymn number 385. We will stand to sing, and would you please remain standing for the blessing and doxology. 385.
After the blessing is our doxology, we sing number 282 in the Psalter hymnal, stanzas 1 and 3. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. <laughs> 